All right, so if you haven't been with us, we've uh, doing kind of a quick little two, three-week series, and, it, and it's really centered around the health of your soul. So in the first week, we talked out of the book of Third John, where John is writing this letter to a friend of his, and he's saying, listen, I've been praying for you. I've been praying not only for the health of your physical life, not only that you would prosper out here, but that your soul would prosper as well, and that you would have a safe and prosperous journey. And so we've really kind of got down to the fact that, listen, you have a soul. That's who you are on the inside. And not only do you have a soul, but the health of your soul is not a given. It cannot be taken for granted. We assume that if things are good out here, if work is good and family is good and all these different things, then the soul is healthy as well. And that's not necessarily the case. And so there are things that we need to do to make sure that our soul is healthy and is, and is embarking on a safe and prosperous journey. And so last week, we got into the first part of that, and we call that getting small. Because as John was writing this letter, he says, listen, there's some things that I'm seeing in your life that indicate to me that you are living a healthy soul. And he talks about um, serving each other and then serving others and, and walking in the truth as an individual and walking in the truth as a community. And so we talk about getting small, and the two sides of that is, is being a part of the dream team serving in that way. And we talked about joining a small group. And if you're newer, you see some of the tables around the room. This will be kind of the last day that the tables are out. And, uh, but we're in a season where we're engaging in small groups and getting ready to kick off that ministry this fall. And so that's, that's the idea of getting small, serving as part of the community, engaging in, in walking in the truth as part of a community, and, and trying to experience a healthier and healthier soul as we do those things. And so today, we're talking about the second thing, and that's get away. And as you sat down, hopefully you noticed that there was something underneath you. Uh, you got some dog tags there, and we'll talk about that in a second. But I do want to uh, ask a question to kind of lead things off this morning. How many of you would consider your job to also be a bit of a hobby? Anybody where your job is also kind of a hobby? Okay, I know my wife Kathy had her hand up. Uh, she is a basketball coach, runs a travel basketball program. But basketball is also very much a hobby for her, very huge part of her life growing up. Um, I have friends who are, uh, you know, like DNR officers, and that's their job, but they love being in the woods. That's a hobby for them as well. I have a friend uh, who's a golf pro, all right, and obviously that's his job, that's his career, but at the same time, it's very much a hobby for him. My job is pastor, but it's also very much a hobby for me. Most of the leadership books and podcasts that I listen to uh, are produced by pastors, people in church leadership. I could sit all day with other pastors and any one of you and just talk church all day to the point where my wife just gets so frustrated because we'll go to my parents' house and my dad's a pastor and it'll just turn into hours and hours of church talk and she's like, let's not talk about church for once. Um, and we just keep on going because it's more spiritual to talk about church. So, so that's that's kind of my hobby along with the career path that God has me on. And where most people watch TV or listen to Metallica while they're working out, I listen to sermon podcasts. So that's how I uh, pass the time while I'm working out. That's just how I, that's how I do things. Now, that whole intro in many ways has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about this morning. <laughs> but it gets me to this point. So many of the church leaders and the speakers and the pastors that I've grown up respecting and learning from, so many of them have had moments in the last few years where they've either had to step down or leave ministry altogether because of some really bad decision-making, and that really frustrates me. 
Okay, because yeah, it's, it's, it's books, it's podcasts, but at, over time you start to feel connected to these people. You're in many ways led by them, taught by them, inspired by them. I know some of you have favorite authors or, or uh, speakers, and, and you start to feel a connection with them. You start to look up to them in, in many ways, and in some unhealthy ways, you put them on a pedestal. And so it's especially frustrating for me because we're not just talking about authors. We're not just talking about spiritual leaders. We're talking about church leaders. We're talking about pastors. And some of these men and women of God, and, and, and you follow them and listen to them, only to find out that they've been shady almost the whole time. And it's really frustrating. And these people who have failed so intensely, I ask myself, how can I trust their leadership and their content and their wisdom when, when they seemingly weren't even walking with God as all these things were coming out? And the tension grows as I, as I move from these modern-day people back to, the, back to the Bible and some of the people in Scripture and think, man, there's some pretty messed up people there. I was listening to a sermon while I was working out a couple weeks ago, um, and this sermon was actually addressing the Me Too movement, which has been sweeping the nation and really the world in many ways. And th- this particular sermon was talking about the impact of that movement on the nation and on the church as it's crept into some of these spiritual leaders that have, that have fallen in ways. And they were talking about David, talking about King David back in the Old Testament and his situation with Bathsheba. And if you're not familiar, I want to I wanna read that story for you just so you can understand the intensity uh, of what happened between those two. So in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, um, it's kind of a long thing, but I'm going to read the whole thing, just so if you're not familiar with it, you can hear it, and if you are familiar with it, you can revisit some of the details of what went down there. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, it says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And there's like 10 sermons in each, this whole passage, but I'm just going to try to read through it. Verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him and and he slept with her. And then she went back home, and the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers were and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? So Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so you will be struck down and die. He will will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege... 
he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, died. And then we'll fast forward to verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Yeah, you think? So, so that's the scenario we're looking at. And, 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 and the idea was presented in this sermon that this was far more than simple adultery. This was an abuse of power. It was an abuse of authority. Bathsheba's in this terrible situation, very little ability to resist, and David took advantage of that and then murdered her husband and other of his soldiers in order to cover it up. David was a bad dude. He's not a good guy. He had great moments, and I'll talk about those in a second, but he's a bad dude, and he's not alone. As you look through the Old Testament, Abraham, Father Abraham, was a bad dude. Moses was a bad dude. Samson was a bad dude. Most of the Old Testament kings were bad dudes. The patriarchs of the 12 tribes, most of them were bad dudes. Some of Jesus' disciples were bad dudes, and the ones who weren't bad dudes were grossly incompetent. And in case the ladies are feeling left out, most of the wives were bad dudes. And yet... God did so much through them. He did so much through them. And I suppose the same could be said about some of these modern-day pastors and leaders who have these terrible moments and have to step down. God does so much through them. And the question becomes, what do I take away from these people? Bible people, real-life, modern-day people? Because there's a danger in taking the wrong things from them, and then you end up putting them on a pedestal that they don't belong on. But there's also danger in thumbing them so low that even the good, solid stuff that they did and said kind of gets washed away and thrown out uh, unfairly. And so as we examine people in Scripture and as we, as we interact with people out in the world who are teaching and, and presenting good ideas, as you sit under someone's teaching, you, you sit under my teaching on a weekly basis, you have to take away the right things. We have to come out of that teaching clinging to the right things. And so I, I went back into the Bible and, and, and looked through some of these people again um, people with issues, right, which was most of them, so it wasn't super hard, but um, I'll get back to David in a second, but Moses, okay, if you don't know Moses, Moses was an Israelite born in Egypt, and during that time, there were so many Israelites that Pharaoh got sick of it and decided to put a stop, so he put out a decree that all the Israelite baby boys that were born needed to be killed on the spot, so Moses' mother has him in secret, puts him in a little basket, floats him down the river, and by chance, Pharaoh's daughter discovers him in the river and, and then raises him as his own. So, so Moses basically lives two lives. He's raised as an Egyptian prince, so he's experiencing royalty and privilege, and, and he's raised among false gods, and, and he faces this confusion as he realizes who, who his family really is and how he's been raised, and, and it drives him to the point where he commits murder because of some of this tension that he's facing in his life. But then during the Exodus, he becomes this great leader. He's wise. He's, he's a model of obedience and faithfulness. And, and the question is, what's the difference here in his life? What, what's, what's making the difference between this, this child of privilege and royalty who commits murder and this guy who becomes this great leader of the Bible and leads God's people through this whole thing? Well, the big difference is that during the Exodus, Moses, eight, nine, ten times, climbs a mountain to spend time with God, 
to meet face-to-face with God. And what we see as we come through his story in Exodus and Deuteronomy is that every great thing he ever accomplished came out of those intimate one-on-one times with God. On his own, he was a murderer and a coward. But after time in the presence of God, he was an orator and a leader and a hero for those people. When he was unsure and when he was scared, he would disappear with God. He would climb that mountain again and he would return a completely different person. And if you want to read the story of Moses, read through Exodus and Deuteronomy and you'll see all these things play out. It's very exciting, very interesting. So that's Moses, this this, uh, bipolar thing that he had going on when he was walking with God versus when he wasn't walking with God. We'll go back to David. Talked about the Bathsheba thing, but throughout his life, when he was living apart from God, He was an adulterer, he was a murderer, he was a dirty politician, he was a hypocrite, and in many ways kind of a crybaby if you read through some of his stuff. But when he would withdraw away with God, he was a completely different person. I want to read a passage from the book of Psalms, Psalm 62. This is David at his best when he's walking with God and experiencing that relationship. Psalm 62, verse 1. Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He's my fortress. I will never be shaken. Down in verse 5, yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He's my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Beautiful poetry, beautiful songs, words of encouragement that last today. Why? Because they weren't coming from David. They were coming out of his one-on-one interactions with God himself. And then we go back to 1 Samuel. Um, right as David comes on the scene, and he's kind of being introduced as the future king, and, and, and he's being welcomed into uh, the, the current king's uh, palace to kind of play music and, and bring peace to the area. And it says this in 1 Samuel sixteen eighteen. One of the ser- servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem. That's David. He knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is fine looking. Now that sounds kind of nice. But then it says, and the Lord is with him. And the Lord is with him. So out of this, out of this moment where we know that David is walking with God and he's close with God, the Goliath thing happens where he defeats the giant. There's military heroics. There's great leadership of God's people. But then Bathsheba happens. And horrible things within his family happen. A broken family tree happens. And if you want to read the whole story of David, you can start in 1 Samuel 16 and go to 2 Samuel 24, and you'll see how this whole thing plays out. But that's just a couple of examples in Moses and David. Read through First and Second Kings, and it's the same story with almost every king recorded there. Same with every military battle. Same with any great hero of the Old Testament, where either the Lord was with them, or the Lord was not with them. Either they were remaining close to their God, or they were choosing to stray from that relationship. And you can fast forward to the New Testament with a guy like Peter. Walked with Jesus. One of the disciples was doing great, just starting to figure out this Jesus thing and find his role in this whole movement, showing potential. And then within minutes of being separated from Jesus, he betrayed him three times and ran away. A guy like Paul wrote most of the New Testament, these amazing letters, but not on his own. No, it came out of times with Jesus. After experiencing Christ, after he had this amazing moment on the road to Damascus and gave his life to Christ, he disappeared for three years 
before writing anything, before teaching anything, before going on any missionary journeys, before planting any churches, he disappeared to learn and grow and spend time with Jesus before doing anything. And he went from a guy who was persecuting, even killing Christians, to a guy who was the most influential person in the, in the New Testament outside of Christ. So, so what am I seeing here in, in Moses and in David and some of these other people and even looking out of the people of modern day that I've respected and looked up to over the years? What I see is that the greatest things to ever be accomplished for God the most fulfilling careers, the healthiest marriages, the most thrilling victories, the most amazing miracles, those powerful things will never come to be without consistent, intimate, personal interactions with Jesus. They'll never come to be. John chapter 15. So much goodness in this chapter, but I'm just going to read a couple verses from it. John 15, 5 to 8. This is Jesus talking. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. These one-on-one interactions with Jesus, getting away, getting, ha- having the, those personal times. And when I look at the great heroes of the Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, the more I see people who were scoundrels and liars and cheats and manipulators and womanizers, adulterers, murderers and cowards. And they line up with some of the worst that our current society has to offer. Not even close to the kind of person I want to be, not even close to the kind of person I want my kids to be. And yet when they came, even for the briefest of moments, face-to-face with God, available and attentive to what God was saying, what he was doing, what he was asking of them, they came down from the mountain, they came out of the cave, they entered the battlefield, and they were given the honor of being a part of the most miraculous moments in human history. When left to their own devices, they're worth nothing. They were nothing worth following, nothing worth emulating, nothing even worth associating with. But in those beautiful times when they were wise enough to get away with God, to retreat with Jesus, away from the world that they had created for themselves, they were privileged to things far greater than any human could attain or experience on their own. Sometimes miracles, sometimes truth revealed, sometimes inspiration and wisdom for the next step or the next season, sometimes simply peace beyond understanding, which is all we ask for sometimes. But in every case, it was something beyond what we could ever imagine. I look at these individuals, and I, I look at the individuals of present day, those who are often lifted up as these great leaders and spiritual people of faith, and honestly, I find myself wanting absolutely nothing to do with any of them. But I want everything to do with their God. Because a God who can accomplish something through people like that is a God worth following, a God worth emulating, a God worth learning from. That's a God I want to get away with as often as possible. And you should too. You have to get away. 
We have to stay connected to that vine. That's where anything, anything good that we do, anything good that happens in and through us comes out of those one-on-one personal interactions with Christ. And so, what's it going to look like for you? First thing I'd say is pick your time and method. Pick your time and method. Give you some examples. Is it going to be in the morning? Is it going to be at night? Is it going to be at lunchtime? It's going to be five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes every day, three to five times a week. Is it going to be Bible reading? Are you going to have a devotional to help you? Is, there, is it going to be something on an app? I would recommend the YouVersion Bible app. It's great. It's got all kinds of great stuff on there. Are you going to go through a Right Now Media video series? If you don't have Right Now Media, stop at the Info Center. They'll tell you what that looks like and how to get plugged into that. Is it going to be quiet reflection around one verse? Is it going to be a scriptural-based novel? Are you going to have a daily verse emailed to you? Is it going to be just you, or are you going to have a, par- a partner who, who uh, you can compare notes with on a daily or weekly basis? Is there going to be a prayer journal to write things down and remember God's provision? What about when God talks to you? How will you remember that? How will you respond to what he says? Are you going to do it in bed? You can do it in your favorite chair, on the porch swing, at the coffee shop, in your car on the way to work. What's your time and method? What's it going to look like for you to get away and have that personal interaction with Christ on a regular basis? There's infinite ways to get away. But start something, switch to something, keep it fresh, and get going. Let that turn into a habit. Just like working out, just like your diet, just like your new job, you got to get things going and make that a regular part of your life in some way. You have to get away. So you got to pick your time and method. Second thing is, start to challenge yourself. Some of you have been Christians for a long time. Some of you have been walking with Jesus longer than I've been alive. Awesome challenge yourself. What's next? What's the next level for you? For some of you, it's time to go further. Maybe you go from one day a week to three days a week. Maybe you go from three days a week to five days a week. Maybe you incorporate a full day away every three months or so, spiritual retreat day. Maybe a weekend each year where you disappear on your own with just your Bible and you leave your phone behind because guess what? Nobody's launching nukes while you're away, it's going to be fine, okay? Twitter's going to survive. Facebook's going to survive. You can leave your, your phone at home. You're going to be okay. But incorporate that full day away. What if you took a personal day or a vacation day from work to spend time with Jesus? Can you imagine the conversations at work if you did that? Oh, how are you using your vacation day this Friday? Uh, I'm going to go camping with Jesus. <laughs> right? It'd be pretty off. But hey, Awkward, but awesome, right? What kind of conversations would come from that? Challenge yourself. All right, if you're looking for a challenge, I have a couple challenges for you. Whether you're looking to get started with something or continue with something or add something, a couple challenges for you on getting away. Start your week every week by getting away. So Monday morning, Monday morning, wake up early to be with Jesus, maybe 15 minutes early, maybe 30 minutes early whether that's in scripture, whether that's prayer, whether that's journaling, start the week with that. Let your whole week flow out of that one-on-one time with Jesus. Start your week with it, Monday morning, okay? Journal, pray, read, listen, whatever that is for you, that's fine. But that's challenge number one. Challenge number two is this, and this, this starts to incorporate the health of this body, okay? Sunday mornings, in your car, in the parking lot, dedicate the morning to God. 
okay? I know you're swearing at your kids as you drive to, to church, okay? I know your kids find a way to be demon-possessed on the worst day of the week, but they do it, right? And guess what? You're just as big of a jerk on Sunday morning as they are. Somehow it happens. I know because it happens at my house. I'm always here, so it's Kathy and the kids, not me. But it happens. So take a moment when you arrive on site for a few minutes in the car. Maybe it's as a family. Maybe you send your family in and you just chill for a second and dedicate the morning to God. Or we have a prayer team that meets right before service every week. And they pray through some of the things that we throw at them, and they, they lift up the service and the team and, and just pray through the morning. Um, and they meet right before church, and we'd love to see you engage in that. Um, and so if that's something that might help you recenter and be a part of dedicating this morning to God so that the things that happen here aren't just coming out of the coffee that we drank on Sunday morning or the breakfast that we had or the conversations we had, but they're coming out of a personal interaction with God himself. So challenge yourself in some way and engage in those two challenges if you'd like. But guys, there's so much potential for this church to see families all over Southeast Michigan transformed. But it's going to be the things that happen in us on a daily basis that determine the, the, the amount of impact that God can have through us as a church. It's all going to come back to those one-on-one getaway opportunities. And if, if God can take what's happening here and use your getaway times to multiply the impact in your own life and your family, then the potential is limitless. And I believe God is taking Fieldstone to some cool places. I don't know what he has for us in the future. We're just trying to figure it out as we go and listen to him and sometimes climb a mountain and find out what kind of thing he's going to carve into the rock. I don't know. But the more he's doing in us as individuals, the more impact he's going to have through us as a church. And I want you to imagine... Imagine what a church would look like if every single person was consistently getting away with Jesus. I can't wait to see what that looks like. Let's pray. God, as we close out this morning, we, we thank you for being here with us. Thank you for engaging in this, this topic with us. Um, God, we know that nothing good happens in this life apart from you. And because of that, God, I pray that each of us, starting with me and reaching out into each one in this room, that we would stay connected to you as the source, as the vine, and that we would branch out of that and bear fruit in your name. God, help us to walk in the truth as individuals, as a community. God, help us to serve each other. Help us to serve others. Help us to represent your truth. God, help us to continually grow and become more and more healthy, not on the outside, but on the inside, at the soul level. God, may this church be different because of it. May the the people this church interacts with during the week be different because of it. Amen.